Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Today, we have a special episode featuring inside provider Kyle Rudden and his series on ESG investing. As Kyle covers quite a lot of ground, we split this session into two episodes. Without further ado, let's go to today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I'm happy to welcome back analyst Kyle Rudden, continuing his series on ESG investing in collaboration with SGX. In this uh, sixth installment of the series, Kyle will examine ESG from alternative angles as ESG is making its way into other asset classes and non-traditional for ESG situations. Kyle, welcome and thank you for being with us once again. Uh, Over to you. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for participating. As Michael said, it's the sixth in a series uh, of eight on ESG-related investing. Tell you what it's about in a second. First, I just want to get through the quick introduction. Some of you have probably been on prior webinars and know this already, but for those that don't, uh, my name is Kyle Rudden. I cover sustainability ESG investing issues on SmartComma. I've been doing that for a number of years now. I've been doing ESG per se, you know, dedicated ESG for uh, 13, 14 years now. Previously in ESG investment research, index creation, and um, some consulting work around uh, reporting standards. Prior to that, I was in ESG-like roles, although we didn't use that vernacular, but I, I covered alternative energy, clean energy, and, and dirty energy as well. I was head of uh, JP Morgan's sell-side equity analyst, head of JP Morgan's uh, global energy research group. So today's webinar, I didn't know what to call it. Probably clear on the title slide. You know, the, the topic of this webinar is really not a topic, not a single topic. It's more like a collection of several topics. It's really hard to label. But before I even try to label it, let me step back. Initially, I had planned on doing something like this as the last, or if not the last, the second to last webinar in the series. This is the third to third to last. Uh, two more. I moved it up, and um, I'll tell you why. I, you know, at first I was really looking at this as kind of a, an everything else topic. You know, kind of a catch-all, and it, it still sort of is. Um, but I was really looking at it as just a hodgepodge, and that that everything else webinar seemed to fit best towards the end, kind of as a wrap up. But um, as I've gotten through a number of these webinars, um, many of the topics that I broach in this one tonight, it kept coming up uh, in other webinars, you know, either in the course of, of uh, another ESG subject, kind of like an aside or a, ta- a tangent, and occasionally as a question posed by the audience. In fact, in the last webinar, someone was asking about ESG and, and uh, Ukraine-Russia. So it really got me thinking about it. And I, I just I decided that the more I thought about it and the more you asked about it, the more I started to view this as a, as a substantive topic, collection of topics, really, rather than just a, a catch-all to throw at the end. So that's kind of why I moved it up. It's not organized in any particular order. Uh, usually I, I do have these things structured in, in like three sections, 
but that's a lot easier when it's really on one topic. These are multiple topics. There's, there's a lot of overlap to see, but they're multiple topics. But if anything, the, um, the umbrella term, like Michael said in the beginning, is just kind of alternative angles of things. You know, I've mentioned in a number of webinars this concept of, uh, you know, the quote-unquote mainstreaming of, of ESG. I probably had it in the first one, the introduction, and I probably mentioned it a few times. Just over the last number of years, how ESG has gone from, you know, its early roots as an obscure investing niche of like tree huggers and Bible thumpers, you know, the ethical investing people and planet for profits kind of motive, but more like philanthropy, where it's it's gone mainstream, uh, greater number of investors and a more pragmatic approach of ESG. Um, it's gone from that, that niche, that do-good niche to something more mainstream um, and diverse, but where alpha generation is not a cardinal sin, where it's more people, planet and profit. Uh, so that's the mainstream of ESG I've been talking about. I've covered it ad, ad nauseum, uh, uh, so I, I won't harp on it now. But what I want to point out in that context is, is something that's kind of equally interesting, if not more, and it's sort of paradoxical, kind of an opposite trend. It's, it's the, the, the unmainstreaming during the mainstream or the non-mainstreaming or whatever you want to call it. It's kind of a par- parallel trend. And it's just the, the, the mainstreaming of ESG among non-mainstream or alternative um, groups, uh, you know, asset classes, uh, investor types, you know, like hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, so on and so forth, not traditionally ESG related, but also, uh, so not just asset classes and investors, but also situations, events, you know, like uh, mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, but, but also um, like geopolitical events like Ukraine. And, and kind of new and, and unconventional, at least unconventional for ESG, investing in, in, in trading strategies. So, you know, when I started kind of writing this and, and creating slides and scripting and everything, I, at some point I realized I, I was sounding like I was reading a white paper from some NGO about sustainable investing and, you know, assets under management, governance, and so forth. So what I decided to do is, it's really difficult to approach it that way. So what I decided to do was just kind of um, address a number of topics in the context of an example, a, a particular situation. And it, at the end of each of these sections, because they are so different, they are, they're interrelated in ways, but it's, it's a collection of different issues. I thought it might make sense at the end of each section just to check with everybody, see if anybody has questions, needs clarification or whatever. So the first one I'm gonna do um, is kind of transactional ESG, if you will, like ESG making its way into deals, investment banking, IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, more than it ever has been. Um, The next one I'm going to do is uh, talk about, I put it in quotes, near-term ESG. ESG has always been a long-term affair. ESG investing has always been a long-term affair. Um, You'd be crazy if you ever thought generate alpha in under five years. This is going back a number of years. But things are changing and, and, and the time horizons for ESG investing are broadening um, their shorter-term opportunities, et cetera, so forth. So I'm going to talk about that. The concept of short selling, I know we've talked about it in the series, but in the, in the context of, you know, just kind of like, quote unquote, traditional or quote unquote, regular long short strategies, we'll talk about something a little bit different here, which is a trend that the hedge funds seem to want to use to use shorting carbon emitters as a carbon accounting method to achieve portfolio carbon neutrality, which is a bit crazy, but touch on that. I mean, again, it's not that we're necessarily talking about the specific issue, but 
it's it's a particular real world and kind of interesting example that that touches on a few things. It touches on hedge funds getting into ESG, and it touches on uh, near term strategies and so on and so forth. You'll, when I get into these, you'll see kind of what I'm talking about. And the last one, I figured I'd just touch on the triple bottom line of uh, war, ESG, and, and triple bottom line aspects of such a significant conflict. Because quite honestly, you know, ESG hasn't been around all that long. Depending on where you are, Europe, US, Asia, 25 years to 15 years to no years. There hasn't been a, a real large scale war while ESG was hot and mainstream. So so it's it's kind of new territory and people are trying to figure it out. And there's some interesting issues. Dealing in ESG or ESG deals, ESG integration in IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, et cetera, and so forth. It's nothing super new. Yes, companies that are, that are inclined to talk about ESG, like, you know, let's say a, a wind power company, you know, they've been talking about ESG for, for decades. They may, we weren't using the acronym decades ago, but they've been talking about those issues. But I'm talking here about companies that, you know, five years ago wouldn't have ever mentioned ESG that are dealing with it early on in the process, um, pre-IPO. They get the mergers and acquisitions in a second. That's actually less less uh, of a focus here. Or early on in the pre-IPO process, it's tough to do, right? Is uh, particularly if you're a more traditional pre-IPO company, you know, like a smaller startup that's getting to that phase. There are exceptions, like Aramco, um, like you know, Tybev, like uh, a, a number of these, like Lick, where these companies aren't public. They're pre-IPO. They're going public, but they're by no means small startups. You know, but I'm, I'm talking about the run of the bill pre-IPO company getting more and more interested in, in uh, creating an ESG narrative before the IPO. Um, so we can talk about it in the growth show, et cetera, and so forth. It's, it's, it being ESG is playing you know, a really important role in, in IPOs. I've, I've published a number of reports on it, on smart comments. I suggest you look at those, um, just the, the kind of thematic reports on ESG in the IPO context, and then a few issuer-specific, IPO-specific analyses. But there are a lot of forces here. I mean, investors are demanding it, you know, particularly a lot of the big um, pension funds, retirement funds. Most of those are inclined to be ESG minded and, and they're, they're big buyers of deals. Stock exchanges like Hong Kong Exchange are increasingly requiring pre-IPO issuers to disclose ESG data, perhaps not as much as a, an established listed issuer, but, but that's kind of a new thing that didn't exist five, six years ago exchanges requiring ESG disclosures as part of the IPO registration process. Investors are grilling managements on, on IPO roadshows. And the, the way that a, a management answers those, if it, or doesn't, the way they react has had some pretty significant ramifications for deals. And I'll, I'll go into a couple examples in a second. Usually by altering the IPO, the pricing, the valuation, or maybe changing roadshow schedules. There haven't been any major cancellations, but there have been some, some major blowups. But pre-IPO ESG narratives and, and the ability to answer questions and that kind of thing can have impacts not just on the IPO, on like uh, investor interest, book building, pricing, but also post-IPO trading evaluation. Um, but one particular, particularly important issue is ESG index inclusion. As, as ESG and sustainability indexes and index-linked products grow and AOM grows. Everybody wants to be a constituent. Obviously, that can help valuation, but the flows can help valuation. But 
you know, it's also it's about more than that for a lot of these companies. It's I don't want to say bragging rights, but it's about prestige. Like um, Lick, the life insurance company of India, uh, first ever, the government and Lick are pursuing pre-IPO ESG ratings. Now I wrote a report on that on Smart Karma, questioning the the logic behind that because it, it just to me it seems like there's more that could go wrong with such a short time frame. And they and they don't really need ratings per se to tell the story. I, I just felt that that they were pushing too hard for something that's too hard, too fast for something that takes a long time to actually do. And, and it it could backfire when the return isn't significant. Not that they shouldn't do it long term, but anyway, that's just an example of of you know a, a really big company and a government of one of the largest countries in the world proactively pushing ESG for one of their IPOs. The investment banking world is also integrating ESG pretty rapidly, and and I'm not talking about ESG exclusions for like you know, fossil fuel lending or palm oil lending or anything like that. I mean that's still very relevant. I'm, I'm talking about mergers and acquisitions predominantly here, because in the investment banking world, that's where I see it most kind of thoroughly integrated. You know, kind of ESG first approaches and thoroughly integrated into the process of you know from working with uh, acquirers to target acquisition to negotiations and due diligence and and uh, even you know post merger integration and operations and that kind of thing you know most banks obviously the big ones i, I see a lot of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan but you know it's it's really a, a big trend and, and there have been a number of studies and, and surveys where you, you can kind of sense that even though this is happening now it's be picking up a lot and there are a lot of reasons for that I mean, you know, there are potentially big risks, like ESG-related risks in, in M&A, you know, valuation risks, operational risks, and so forth. And there's some evidence that taking kind of an ESG approach to um, M&A and, and doing ESG-centric consequence analyses and that kind of thing can actually produce better results, you know, tighter, quicker strategic integration, uh, achieving uh, synergies that are expected, that sort of thing. But I want to get back to the IPOs just to kind of give you a quick feel for um, some real-world examples of how ESG pre-IPO and in, in a couple of cases here post-IPO really has a significant impact. One of which is Saudi Aramco. That was you know, one of the world's biggest IPOs. It was a number of years ago now. I also wrote a pretty in-depth report on that IPO uh, on Smart Commerce, so if you're interested, take a look at it. But that one, that one was interesting. I mean, it was an ESG nightmare off the bat. I mean, I knew when they announced it, it was going to be a fun report to write. You have got, you know, the biggest oil company in the world and, you know, the Saudi government. And at the time, I don't know if Khashoggi had just been killed or, or shortly after. And there's all sorts of human rights stuff in the news. They had recently an oil field had been nuked, not nuked, but hit by the missile by Yemen or something. It was an absolute ESG mess at the time. And, and that came out during the roadshow. They they had initially wanted the, the prince wanted to um put as part of his like I don't know what he called it, green new plan or whatever. And he was really excited about it. He wanted to raise touting, you know, renewables and clean oil refining and everything. No one was buying it. And it was supposed to be a two billion dollar valuation. They were getting grilled by foreign investors, particularly in Europe, about ESG issues. They were shocked. They, they knew they'd be getting them on the environmental side. They didn't realize how focused people would be on human rights. And they eventually had to, to scale back to almost nothing the uh, international side of the roadshow. And then they scaled the deal back because they didn't have 
the you know big foreign anchor investors they thought they might have, the big institutions like LNG and CalPERS in the United States and whatever else. Um, so that wound up, it was still a monstrous deal, you know, $1.7 billion, but it was $300, sorry, $300 billion effectively left on the table because of ESG concerns. Um, Deliveroo was another one, um, not nearly as big, but UK-based um, uh, online food delivery startup. So Saudi Aramco is one of those examples of an established company doing an IPO. This is more of a traditional, you know, grow till you're ready to raise capital and do an IPO route. Um, so March 2021 is a, a $10 billion deal. It was like 10 and a half US, seven points, some eight or so uh, billion pounds. This one was interesting. It, aside from the fact that it, it lost 30% of its value on the first day, somewhere intraday on the first day, I think it, it probably closed it like down 2.8 billion or something like that, but basically down 30% on day one of IPO trading. Much of that loss had to do with ESG issues. It wasn't entirely ESG, but it was substantially ESG and substantially social pillar issues that were, you know, about, you know, whole gig economy workers' rights stuff, you know, where you got drivers that aren't salaried and they don't get benefits and they're not treated right and they're docked pay if they, they're late or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's come up with DD. It, it, it's a pretty common issue. But big investors, you know, Viva, LNG, MG, had expressed in, in ex explicitly in ESG terms, using ESG, et cetera, and so forth, had expressed concerns, backed away from each of those for slightly different reasons, for all ESG reasons. And uh, subsequently, I mean, the stock's down another 50% in the last year or so. Um, it's got hit with, a, hit with a couple of, of small lawsuits, but, but it's still dealing fundamentally with some of those um, social pillar issues, you know, labor relations, uh, workers' rights, whatever you want to call it. You know, some of, some of them, to be honest with you, are just are typical for a company like that. They're growing things. You know, one issue with, with IPOs, um, particularly this route, not the Aramco route, when you're a startup and you're growing, you usually don't have the money or the time to focus on ESG like an established listed company would. Maybe you do a little bit of it, but you're really out there growing the company and getting to the point where you're doing the IPO. So some of this has to be forgiven, but they've had a pretty rocky road. Allbirds, another 2021 IPO. This one's Asia Pacific, New Zealand. It's a footwear and apparel company. You know, they make the hippie stuff, uh, you know, recyclable materials and don't use th these chemicals, et cetera, and so forth. They really, prior to the IPO, and I almost feel bad. You know, it's like a kid that tries so hard at something but fails. You know, you want to give him credit for trying. It, it, this was the, you know, the, 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 the ultimate greenwashing perspectives. It was just chock full, riddled with ESG vernacular for the sake of ESG vernacular. And, and while the company is, is you know, definitely has eco-friendly products and it definitely has a real genuine sustainability vision and, and concern and everything, it went overboard. Like it, the rea reality or truth was good enough. They should have just stuck with it, but they, they felt the need to just go overboard. And they got forced by the SEC to, um, because of, of kind of la labeling and terminology that was a little too green, they were forced by the SEC to revise, rewrite the perspective several times. They were told to cut back on all the green language. So they, they pulled out hundreds of related words, uh, green and sustainable, et cetera, and so forth, just where it, was, where it was being overused. And I think more interestingly, they were told to restate 
misrepresented um, ESG and sustainability claims like that. You know, they had made comments or claims about the carbon footprint of their, their shoes or, the, you know, their products, but didn't at all include scope three emissions, et cetera, and so forth. So it was just, it was a, it was a lot of um, stretching the truth. There were, there were some real truths in there, but a lot of stretching the truth. And, and they ultimately got hit with a pretty big class action lawsuit by uh, both investors and customers um, claiming they misrepresented the sustainability aspects of, of their products. And that stuff uh, had a rough run. Can't remember what what it is, but I mean, it's it you know it's down way way off IPO levels. Um, had the numbers before, but I mean, you know, like you know, down to like six dollars and something cents from I don't even remember what it was twenty thirty forty, but 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 down significantly. There are other examples. There are. It's actually another uh, topic I probably could have put in here, but uh, is. Uh, an increase, and if you want the last webinar, I mentioned it briefly, a, a palpable increase in sustainability and ESG-related uh, lawsuits, uh, particularly related to climate claims. And, and there, are, there are other examples of IPOs that had a rough time because of ESG issues, but these, these stand out because they, they were pretty significant, and each of these were slightly different. I figured it would kind of give you, um, you know, a, a flavor for these. So... I call this near-term ESG. It's, it's really, um, you know, like I said, I, I didn't want to, you know, zip through topics and sound like like a, an NGO white paper. So I figured I'd try to package these things in, in, in a slightly different way. So I just labeled this near-term ESG. But really what this is, is uh, it's about, so in the beginning of the, the webinar, I, I mentioned the alternative mainstream or the, the non-mainstream mainstream. I mentioned uh, unconventional free ESG, unconventional investors and asset classes so like venture capital, hedge funds, um, private equity, et cetera. I mentioned sort of unconventional for ESG situations and events. And then the last one I mentioned was kind of new or, or atypical or unconventional for ESG uh, trading, uh, investing opportunities and strategies. So this this kind of hits a couple things. Um, the biggest intersection is is the ESG data problem, which uh, I covered in the last two webinars, um, but one aspect in particular, which is timeliness of ESG data. So it's the intersection of that ESG data problem and the solution to that problem and the entree of, of uh, different kinds of investors like hedge funds. I'll get to that in a second. So the, the, I'm not going to get into the whole data problem, but one of the ESG data problems, a collection of flaws inherent in ESG data that have been an impediment to greater adoption and alpha generation, or at least proving ESG alpha exists and that kind of thing. But one of, so it's a collection of problems. One of the big problems has, and still is, but it's getting better, is the timeliness of ESG data. It's non-financial data, it's not regulated, it's, that's changing. So I'm going back like five years. Historically, it hasn't been regulated at all. That's, that is changing. It's partially regulated now. It's getting better, but some of the, the Legacy problems linger, it takes time to work out. And one of them is timeliness. ESG data being not regulated, particularly in the past, companies have released it if they felt like it. If they didn't, they didn't disclose anything. If, if they did, they did it whenever they decided to, whenever they wanted to. You couldn't predict. Um, now there's a little bit more predictability because there are many companies are doing 
either publishing an ESG report, say a sustainability slash ESG report, simultaneously with an annual report or, or publishing a single integrated report. And that, that seems to be the trend. So it's getting, so the predictability is getting better, but it's still just once annually. You, you might get um, like quarterly data supplement updates or something like that, but it, yeah, you know, it's at best quarterly. And if we're using this to invest, that's a problem because stock markets move in real time. So quarter, quarterly data, you know, for, for hourly, you know, our hourly study, you know, not even hourly, you know, second ticks, minute ticks, it just doesn't work. That's improving, which is what I'm getting to this near-term thing. We're not there yet, but the problem of timeliness is becoming a solution of timeliness. Companies are getting better, as I said, at reporting more regularly and um, more consistently. But more importantly is, I say, I say on the slide, a new breed of third-party ESG data providers, but also a new mentality, not just uh, product providers. Um, but I'm talking about like fintech-like startups, um, like not MSCI, not S&P, not Refinitiv, not the big behemoth ESG data providers. Um, they're, they're getting better at, at real-time updates too, but they create indices for investment products. And you can't have an ETF linked to an index and rebalance the index every hour. It's just not going to work. So there's, there's a, there was a void for something else that's being filled by this new breed of tech-savvy kind of fintech ESG companies. Um, and what's important is that a number of things important. They, they predominantly focus on information technology, machine learning, alternative data, you know, like satellite imagery and social media feeds and natural language processing, that kind of thing, which is far more conducive to real-time ESG information and intelligence. You know, much of it is truly real-time, whether or not the material metrics are real-time, it really depends. But if they're not real-time, they're, they're like on a daily basis much better than quarterly or annual. And importantly, these companies are fresh business models. They're not entrenched ESG data providers or index providers, they're, they're tech firms. And they're, they're not, as far as I know, not looking necessarily to license indices and, and you know, get, the, get the linked AUM up. They're about the technology and about the data and that's what they're selling. So the hands aren't tied in ways that, that others are. So that's, real, that's really changing things for ESG in, in a pretty big way. You know, aside from the fact that there's more data available and it's being democratized, it's not owned and controlled by, you know, what's effectively a monopoly, you know, that, that sort of MSCI or Affinitive S&P, you know, I got the, the, the market cornered on certain things. So it's a new fresh case. Consider it like the independent research of, of ESG. And again, the most important thing is that it's taking a quarterly to annual update window down to anywhere from seconds to, to days, depending on the, the, you know, the sector, the kind of metric. And, and you can do a lot of things with that that you can't do from an investing standpoint with quarterly data or um, annual data. So historically, uh, up until recently, ESG investing was long only equity, long term long only equity, right? I mean, fixed income here or there, but you know, it, it was pretty much a long equity game and very long term. And 
you know, I started looking at ESG Alpha Connections, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we weren't seeing, you know, any evidence until like, you know, close to a decade out in terms of a back test. You know, in some cases, you know, five years, but like that, five years was short term back then. Maybe you're looking at a few years for most ESG investing now, not 10, but the real short term windows didn't exist at all for ESG, kind of a buy and hold thing. It's a medium term at the shortest, you know, largely due to the disconnect of um, ESG data and markets, but, but also in terms of disconnects, timing disconnects between ESG related actions by, by corporates, by issuers. And the results, you know, ESG stuff has to work its way through the, the corporation before it manifests in equity alpha or uh, lower cost of capital or, or whatever. So there's a lot of do and waiting. You're doing and then waiting. That's changing. You know, and, and the saviors is alternative data and, and, and these new technology firms and and you know, just the overall trend, uh, real-time ESG data and intelligence is, is the ultimate game changer. We're not stuck in that, that five to 10 year window. You can start looking at things closer to today. You know, I, I don't know about day, you know, day trading and programmatic trade, ESG trading yet, but you know, you, you can definitely start looking at ESG as not just ESG investing, but maybe ESG trading. Um, you can start thinking about ESG in a risk arbitrage sense, and you know a, a lot of a lot of shorter term opportunistic trading kind of ways, as opposed to you know quote unquote investing. You know, short term positions, shorting, which which I've mentioned a couple of times, and I'll get into uh, a little bit more in a second. You know, short short you know shorting has historically been kind of a taboo in um, ESG circles, but you know as it's gone mainstream, it's it's more acceptable. I mean, talking about, you know, just like hedging and, and you know, traditional long shorts as opposed to uh, what I'm going to get into about um, carbon accounting. So even shortings, you more expect, you know, that Japan pension fund a while back, it suspended it and then reinstated it. it it's just, and, and there was no proof that it was about borrowing shares for shorting, but that was the, the undercurrents and, and it's, it's just become more acceptable and, and quant strategies, again, the machine learning, AI, alternative data, quant strategies are on the rise, particularly as hedge funds get in. This is just another example of how all these things I'm talking about kind of overlap. So right now I'm, I'm talking about new, new data providers. I'm talking about hedge funds. I'm talking about new investment strategies. So there's a lot of kind of intersection overlap, but, but quantitative ESG strategies are, are, they've been around for a while, but, but they always had their hands tied behind their back because of the, the data timing lack of certain kinds of data and the timeliness of it. Now we're drowning in data and, and we're getting it a lot faster. So those, those kinds of strategies become more viable anyway. All right, so shorting ESG. Um, this is just, uh, I'm touching on, I'll touch on a couple of things here. I'm, I'm touching on the, the influx of hedge funds generally, but, but then this, this weird trend. Um, but the title is shorting ESG or short selling ESG. And that, that actually is a broader topic. I, I touched on it very briefly. Just to summarize the, the, the more generic version of shorting ESG hedge funds or, or otherwise, historically it's been it's been taboo the, in, in ESG circles that you know it's 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 bad. Same you know, same reasons as it's taboo anywhere else if it is, but just exacerbated. It's 
it's not the ethical thing to do and so on and so forth. You know, but that 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 was then, that was years ago when when it was a niche group of tree huggers and Bible thumpers. Now it's you know, mainstream investors, more mainstream investors, using ESG as another tool in the toolbox, where you know, where returns are important, alpha generation is important. In one of my early presentations, I had a, a chart. There are other variants of it out there. You've probably seen it. It's a pyramid. And, you know, there's kind of like an alpha, ESG alpha, ESG impact continuum or trade-off where like philanthropy is at the top. It's, it's, it's well, char- charity is way at the top. There's no concern about return there. Philanthropy is, is concerned about managing assets and money, but it's not a profit motive necessarily. You know, and then you got impact investing and all the way down to ESG integration, which is kind of an alpha first, or, you know, it, it's, it's not do good even at the expense of lower returns. It's, it's a little bit of both. Um, the concept of, of double materiality. Um, so short selling, kind of in a, in a traditional sense, as a matter of personal opinion, I, I personally feel that, you know, done responsibly, it has, it has its place in, in any kind of ESG-related investing. What I have here only isn't responsible, I'll get to, but first hedge funds in ESG. The ESG party has been has been booming for years. It was started by, you know, the 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 commune of, of tree huggers, you know, the, the niche funds years and years and years ago. It started to go more mainstream, it kind of the, the the ethical investing group, the socially responsible investing group. And and you know, now it's it's kind of completely mainstream, but but we're talking about mainstream investors and in, in kind of more mainstream kinds of investments and uh, entities and, and asset classes. I'm talking about, you know, um, mutual funds and ETFs and, and pension funds and that kind of thing. The, the, the alternatives, the fringes that, um, you know, uh, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity, family offices, the REITs, <clears throat> a little bit, not, not so much REITs, but the, the, the fringe groups were latecomers. And, you know, for a number of reasons, many of which are pragmatic, it's, it probably didn't make sense for hedge funds to get in much earlier. And they're good at kind of sitting by the, the sidelines and, and, and watching and learning before they do anything. But they're, they're, they're making up for lost time. They're late to the party, but they're making up for lost time. It's small, uh, relatively speaking, you know, within the ESG ecosystem and whatever big total assets under management for ESG number you want to take, you know, Bloomberg's got whatever it is, 50 something billion and USSIF has some other numbers of billions. It, it's tens of billions under management that's somehow linked to ESG. Globally, all asset classes, et cetera, and so forth. Hedge funds probably don't show up on that pie chart in terms of absolute AUM. But relatively speaking, relative to the hedge fund industry, they're getting involved. The last, and this is probably dated by a few months, but the last report I saw was about a billion uh, in hedge fund um, AUM, and that, that might have just been um, U.S. Europe. I, I don't know. I have to go back and find the report, but it's a decent enough number, um, and it's a decent enough number when just a few years ago the number was zero. And and the funds vary. You get some activist hedge funds. You've got some hedge fund like funds, like hedge fund like ETFs that are more activist. You know, it's kind of the traditional long short. You've got hedge funds that you know aren't, aren't doing this to save the world. They're they, they're not necessarily ESG linked assets. They're ESG curious. They don't want to miss something. They're opportunistic. You know, it really runs the gamut. But this one strategy I want to talk to talk about 
And it's not a particular company strategy or fund specific strategy. It's just a, a strategy that's that's really making the rounds in the hedge fund world. And, and the hedge fund world is getting a lot of criticism for it um, from others in the ESG space. It's it's basically, it's, it's really simple. The idea is, you know, they want to say their por- their portfolio is net zero, carbon neutral and net zero. They have reasons to do that. Customers might ask, you know, but it, it, it's expensive to get there potentially. And, you know, they've kind of figured out that, well, if we, you know, short, as get, getting a bit to the question of offsetting, if, you know, if we short big carbon emitters, so, you know, let's say we've got a couple carbon emitters, big oil, we, we, you know, we want some energy exposure. We, you know, we like Chevron, but we hate Exxon Mobil, whatever the case may be. You short carbon emitters and that, that accounts, account, that counts, counts, C-O-U-N-T-S and accounts for carbon offsetting. And that, that theoretically you could have a carbon neutral portfolio even though you've not done a damn thing to take uh, an ounce of carbon out of the atmosphere or anything like that, you're just you're offsetting and you're 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 passing the buck. Someone else or the fund is passing the buck to someone else. And the debate's the pretty hot. You know, I I don't know how far this is going to go. There are, you know, the, the idea of doing this as a, as, a, as a carbon offset, a permanent one, I think is ridiculous. There are plenty of reasons the hedge fund should be shorting based upon ESG. Legit reasons: speculating, making money, de-risking, you know, even specifically shorting the carbon-intensive stocks. I'm talking about here. It could be smart financial de-risking. You know, like a big, you know, an Exxon has got a ton of climate risk um, related to its business. We might not know what the number is. You know, so by shorting, you're, you're, you're de-risking, but but to short to achieve portfolio carbon neutrality for your hedge fund is ridiculous. I think, but anyway. And it's ridiculous because no one's talking about doing it temporarily, which kind of gets to the point I was going to bring up. But the question is that, that carbon offsetting is legitimate to, to an extent. There are differences in, in offset programs and everything, but there's some things that, that are you know, the shady side of the, the offsetting business, the used car salesman kind of stuff. You know, but, but most of it's legit, but it's, it's a short-term fix. It's, it's a... Like I said, it doesn't, generally speaking, a lot of things don't take carbon out of the atmosphere. Some things go a long way in putting a lot less into the atmosphere. Some things help, you know, I mean, if you're planting trees, you're, you're creating natural carbon sinks. But in the end, you know, what's most important is, is, is reducing carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions, but carbon emissions. Um, offsetting is part of the strategy to get there, um, but it's not a permanent, permanent solution. That's it for this week. Check back next week for part two. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.